This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, look, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. And it's in the ball. Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, The Game. Another week, another podcast, and this week we've got something to celebrate. Ducks off to a 1-0 start. My name's Matt Bagley, joined across the interwebs via Zoom chat by my friend Justin Hopkins, owner and publisher of ScoopDuck.com. Justin, let's start with that W. Ducks beat Stanford rank that game for me one out of ten how do you feel afterwards well you know that's a good question and and i have uh, two ways of looking at it um on a normal year on a one to ten scale i would say that was a seven maybe uh, six and a half seven you know somewhere near good game good solid base for you you know good win um you know just you beat stanford we did you know as far as I think you and I were on a similar page. I felt Stanford was going to be a good team. I know a lot of people were were and are down on them. That looked like a pretty solid team to me. Are they a national caliber playoff contender? Absolutely not. But that was game one. They played a very a very sound game, a very fundamental game. You know, they did have some mistakes. Unfortunately, they, they couldn't hit a field goal to save their lives. But, you know, overall, it's a good Stanford team now. I said I would grade it two ways. On a curve, understanding the pandemic and what we've seen the last six, seven, eight weeks, whatever, from the other teams playing, that game was probably closer to a nine for me if we're looking at this yeah. through that scope. You know, first game, didn't get the traditional fall camp that you're used to, didn't have the spring camp, summer camp that you're used to. Everything's going on. All of a sudden, the Pac-12's off, then the, the Pac-12's back on. You ended up playing a pretty good Stanford team. Sure, they were minus Davis Mills um, and a couple other players that I know did affect them. Oregon was also without some players, which is going to be the norm of this season. Sure, we're going to talk about the players that didn't play, but everyone still got to show up and play the game, assuming they have enough bodies to do that. Um, I thought it was a nine, whole new offensive line, whole new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, some new pieces on defense. And if you go back and you look at it, Oregon ended up winning by 18 points. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that perspective where you don't just talk about what all those new pieces did because there's a lot to like and a lot to pick at. uh, But you talked about how it compares to some of the other games. We're taping this on a Tuesday afternoon. I just rewatched the USC Arizona State game this morning and I, I couldn't believe compared to how fundamental I think the Oregon-Stanford game was. Each team had a clear game plan, and they executed that game plan to the best of their ability. I can't believe how crazy the rest of the conference was on Saturday. USC and Arizona, that's one of the sloppiest games I've ever seen. It really was. USC had no business winning that football game, and as much as everybody wants to run around and, and give Herm Edwards credit and do all this and that, which he deserves some, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to you know, belittle him too far. That was a bad loss. Yeah. That was a really bad oh, loss. Yeah. It, it was a coaching, you know, a, a coaching 
uh, it wasn't all on coaching, but coaching was a part of that loss. And, and you really, USC had no business winning that football game, football game. Anybody that can, you know, basically manage to put five offense, offensive linemen out there and create some creases and run a little bit should have no problem beating USC and then just going out on defense and loading up the, the front of that box and ripping right after the quarterback. And you should be able to nail their quarterback and have them out by the, uh, by the first quarter. So I think USC has got huge problems. I know they won the game. They came back, yada, yada. For, for that game, for me, all I saw there was a clear talent advantage for USC is what ended up winning them that game at the end. Yeah. Um, let's take this back to Oregon-Stanford because my point in this, at least for me, when I watch some of these other games in the Pac-12, uh, USC shoot themselves in the foot, somehow win. Oregon State, Tristan Jebbia can't hit the side of a barn. Uh, we haven't seen Cal play yet, haven't seen UW play yet, but I, I have to feel like even with the warts we saw on Saturday, Oregon looks like the best team in the Pac-12. Do you agree? I do agree, and I and you do you did offer a very important caveat. We haven't seen Cal play. We haven't seen Washington play. I'm not so sure Washington's going to be talked about that highly after a couple of weeks of play, but we'll see. The jury's out. Uh, Cal, who knows what you're getting there? It certainly looks like Cal's going to have an uphill battle just to play with the way the city of Berkeley and the local health authorities are handling things down there for Cal. So that's an intriguing situation. Uh, in its own right right there. But yeah, I mean, you know, I know I was beating up on USC and ASU, you know, Colorado and UCLA looked really bad. Didn't look like a very good football game to me. I thought Washington State played a good game and I think they're going to give Oregon a good game. I don't know that I'm going to necessarily call them a great team yet. I think I think they're good. They they pose some matchup problems. They're 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 better than I expected. I will definitely say that. But like you said and to your point right now I don't know how you can look at what we saw week one and not say, hey, Oregon definitely looks like the best team in the conference right now. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I won't be surprised if Stanford really ends up shocking quite a few people, uh, assuming they can keep a relatively healthy squad on the field most weeks. Um one other big thing, I, I want to let you know, we've got two guests going to swoop onto the pod this week. Uh, our friend Hithliday from Addicted to Quack just wrote, like the Bible of duck football film breakdown week one against Stanford. He put that up on Addicted to Quack. Really good read if anybody wants to learn a ton about the X's and O's. Um, he's going to join us in a couple of minutes. And then our friend QB11 from the Scoop Duck Boards, he's going to chime in as well. We'll get those guys' thoughts, not just on what they liked and what they disliked Saturday, but what they expect going forward this Saturday with Oregon uh, – potentially having to uh, put on some snowshoes up there in Pullman. Um, you, you know this angle better than anybody, my friend. How did that win change the recruiting front for Oregon? Uh, not at all. I mean, we're, you know, here we are week one. Um, I know something that I believe we touched on last week and I'll continue to kind of believe is that, you know, the, re the remaining targets, the remaining recruits for Oregon, for USC, you know, mo most of these big top guys, the top 100, top 200 type players are really looking for a body of work to see who's improved, who's got something to sell, you know, who's, who's developing players, you know, all those things. I think for USC, it's really going to come down to winning football games and, and, and looking like you're supposed to win the South. 
Um, you know, if I'm a recruit and I'm trying to look objectively, I'm not sure that that question got answered this week, but USC won and that's what you're supposed to do. So you got to give them credit there. Like for Oregon, it's for people to look, you know, for them to stay on top and, and kind of be the leader of the conference, which they've, which they've become under Mario Cristobal. Um, you know, you're looking at players to be developed. And I think if you're an offensive lineman, you're really looking at saying, hey, look, okay, you know, they produced some guys and got them into the league and, and did some great developing there. Let's see what they do with the next wave of guys. And so I think that's kind of the next step. But in terms, and I'll say this, in, in terms of short-term recruiting returns, you know, I don't think there's much to glean from a week one win, uh, you know, over Stanford. But again, you're laying the foundation. If Oregon can get to 5-0, and 6-0, and whatever the case might be, and showcase. Here's the thing. Here's what people are kind of losing sight on. And I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but not too far. Oregon's really young. I mean, there was a number, yeah. number of times oh, yeah. where you look at Oregon's defense. And, you know, it was true freshman, uh, redshirt freshman, you know, sophomore was two-thirds of the guys on the field at any one time on defense. And although that wasn't the case on offense, because you're usually in trouble if you're starting, you know, offensive linemen as a true freshman, unless their name is Panay Sewell. But, you know, you look in the offense, and, and we saw a Chris Hudson signing, and we saw, you know, D.J. Johnson moved over. He's got, a, he's got several years left on his clock. You know, you, you just saw, you know, Micah Pittman. He's a sophomore. You, there's a lot of youth on that side. Tyler Shuck, obviously the quarterback. So, I mean, Oregon's a really, really young team. So if you look at this in a, in a kind of a, of a two-year lens, if you will, and you say, okay, look, I don't know about other people, but for me, no matter what happens, this is a bit of a throwaway season. I mean, I'm excited for football. I'm watching. I'm into it. I'm glad to cover it. Right. You know, this is all great, but it's still it's a throwaway season. Yeah, it's a throwaway season. It's, you know, Oregon's not going to get, I don't think Oregon's going to get all six games, you know, or seven, however you want to phrase that. And, you know, if that doesn't happen, even if, it, if it's four or five, at least we got some football. But for me, I think you're using those almost as like a, a, you want to call it a, a intramural season or you want to call it like an extended spring, you know, you're just basically moving, you know, getting those guys developed and, and, and really looking forward to the 2021 20, season. And if you've got that many young guys on the field, that's a really, really valuable thing for Mario Cristobal and the Ducks. Right. Uh, I, I definitely think it's valuable on the field because those guys can only get better. I agree with you. Young talent at wide receiver, tight end, all over the defense, all over the O-line, uh, and obviously the young man under center. Do you think that helps or hurts them in recruiting to have a young, successful team like that? You know, I, <clears throat> I don't know that it necessarily hurts Oregon. It, it, it can in some particular cases, but I think in a, like a broad spe spectrum, you know, with the way Mario Cristobal recruits. And, and the other thing folks forget, or don't forget, but it's just something that's kind of new and people haven't really caught on yet. If you're looking at the Ducks and some of the talent that they're bringing in and the way it's being developed, you're almost operating on a three-year cycle now. So let's just say if you consider a sophomore young, which in a lot of cases it is, there's a lot of these sophomores that might only be playing one more year and heading off to the NFL. And you can do that now because with the way the education system has changed, you've got a lot of high schools giving college credits so that when these players get into college, they're already a year in, you know, in particular on a major or a degree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in three years, a lot of these young men can, 
can leave a year early with a degree. And I think that makes a huge difference. So we saw it happen with Panay Sewell, basically. Obviously, it was only two years, but effectively, it was three years. You know, you, I see a guy like Mikel Wright being potentially a three-year player. I think we can all agree Kayvon Thibodeau is likely a three-year player. Noah Sewell, if, if he continues with what we saw in week one, we're potentially looking at another three-way, three-year player there. So, you know, I, I think that the calendar's kind of changed. And that's the, that's the kind of thing right there that will outsell a concern about depth, about, hey, I'm going to come in and sit behind this guy for three or four years. Well, guess what? If this guy's good enough, you're only sitting behind him for a year or two max, and he's out, and you're the next man in. So, it, you know, it might still continue to be a concern at, at quarterback, where we see a lot of turnover at the quarterback position uh, nationally via the transfer portal. But, uh, but these other positions, it doesn't seem to be as big of a concern as it used to be. Okay. Uh I, I like all those points. I feel like that's a good uh, stopping place and uh, allows us to, to kind of use this as a starting place for our next two guests. We're going to have QB11, our friend from the Scoop Duck boards who understands the scouting side of recruiting and, and can really get in the mind of a quarterback and break down game film. And also our pal over at Addicted to Quack, the great Hithliday with his uh, weekly film breakdowns. Duck fans, if you haven't read that yet, check it out. Uh, I love that piece. Just so much to learn. We'll pick his brain, uh, pick QB11's brain as well, learn about what they liked Saturday and what they expect this Saturday. Talking duck football. Scoop duck and hi-fi. We got QB11, we got Hithliday, and, uh, you know, Justin and I having fun catching up on a Nice Oregon win on Saturday to kick off the Pac-12 slate. Uh, earlier, Justin and I talked about what we liked. Uh, what did you guys like on Saturday? What stood out to you? Well, the big question marks were the quarterback and the offensive line. I think they performed uh, fantastic. Uh, you know, really don't have uh, too much in the way of complaints. Um the you know and and those things being resolved and there you know nothing else on film you know jumped out as like oh this thing that you were banking on as a big strength of the team turns out to be a weakness uh boy this really looks like an all-cylinders team you know i really think uh you know six no is definitely um certainly within the realm of possibility and i might start wanting to bet on it Ooh. yeah um kind of piggybacking on what hitfoday said there wasn't anything that really stood out as a, oh, this is going to be a big problem for us this year offensively. I think it was more there's little individual reps that need to be cleaned up, some technical stuff along the offensive line every now and then. But really it was, by and large, a positive experience kind of revisiting the film. So, you know, for you guys, I think probably the biggest topic to date and will continue to be just to kind of hone in a little bit on the offensive line, uh, you know, uh, all new five guys, they moved around a bunch. We didn't see Steven Jones in the first quarter. Uh, I, I didn't hear for sure, but I assume it was a disciplinary thing. It sounds like a, a Mario Cristobal thing to do if you're late to a meeting. He's very strict on those things, and I applaud him for that. But overall, once that offensive line got out there, people seem to still continue to be concerned about the run game. I don't know about you guys, but I thought the run game was very effective when it was needed and really did what we've seen Oregon do in the past, which is start to wear down opponents and open up in the first, in the second half, excuse me. Did you guys see something similar QB 11? What'd you kind of see there and, and hit you follow up with him? 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I thought the run game was actually very good, especially once we got Jones back. Um, but the biggest thing was it's like a six-man rotation like it was last year. It's just sub walk for Aiello and you've got your six. Um, but, but the biggest thing in the run game was is the, the, the plays that were quote-unquote failed plays for the most part were actually bad reads in the zone read game by the quarterback uh, or, or missed reads, I would say, because the edge players for Stanford were doing a pretty good job squeezing things down but still staying square giving kind of a gray area read to Shuck. So, um, but the performance of the offensive line was actually very good, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, so I, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, uh, QB's right. It's a six-man rotation. And actually, I'm not so sure that it was Jones being held out for disciplinary reasons because they were rotating every two drives. Um uh, what their personnel was um, all the way through to the end of the game. There were only nine drives. So uh, that final one, but you know, even on that final drive, Jones wasn't in on a he, you know, th- they put more back at left tackle and uh, Umvailulu at right tackle. So that might've been planned, you know, to do it that whole way. I noticed in 2018 and 2019, they were doing substitutions on the offensive line on drive by drive basis. So um, th- that follow like a pattern uh, in that way. So it-, it could just be a coincidence that that happened on the quarter break. Um, Regarding the run game, boy, Justin, that's news to me. I, um, you know, I try to insulate myself while I'm doing film review from what other ducks are, are panicking about online. I, the <laughs> run game was, uh, and and so it's always interesting when I come up from air after I publish an article to see like what is it the duck fans have been panicking about this time, and and boy, uh, I'm surprised anybody had a problem with that rushing performance. It was excellent. I, QB's right. Like the, the the biggest single problem was that you know Shuck was not uh, keeping the ball on a, a couple of plays where he should have and not only those plays therefore were negative but it made the Stanford defense not had to be honest and you can see a very dramatic difference um, about midway through the second quarter uh, you know when Chuck keeps the ball and all of a sudden the defense opens up because uh, they have to honor it so um, yeah excellent rushing performance excellent offensive performance all around I can't yeah, and then just to add oh sorry go ahead no 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 you you have the floor man yeah, go adding one more thing to that. Like Hitler said at the beginning of the game, they didn't respect the quarterback run at all. It was like straight out of 20, 2019, oh, Oregon's not going to run the quarterback. And then you just saw things soften up from a numbers perspective as the game went on. And the deep shots had an effect too. I think you saw a, a much higher percentage of too high coverages in the second half uh, once we started kind of taking those shots over the top and winning, winning those one-on-one matchups on the edge. It just makes me laugh thinking that fans might have not enjoyed that running game performance on Saturday because I'm with you guys I, I I feel really strongly going into this game you both talked about how it was kind of like a, a flip of the script we've seen in years past between Oregon and Stanford where normally Stanford is the physical team and Oregon's the finesse team just trying to you know out athlete them and uh, Saturday I felt like it was a different story Stanford if anything, offensively, I, I saw them trying to throw to the sidelines and, and trying to, you know, play a little finesse. And Oregon having success right down the middle uh, didn't matter who the back was, didn't matter what the offensive line five or, or six were. They were just having success all night long. 
Well, Stanford was sort of forced into that. They, um, before the game, they announced that uh, Connor Weddington was out on, I believe, COVID protocol. And and then what we knew going into the game was they really didn't have a pass catching tight end. That's really the sort of end of an era for Stanford. Like for the last I don't know, 10 years under David Shaw, they always had dominant tight end play. Right. And they just don't have that anymore. And, and so it meant they just really don't have, you know, they really don't have a lot of good passing options uh, in this game uh, for the middle of the field. You know, they had to work the the cornerbacks. And the effect of that is we got to see a lot of, you know, Oregon has great cornerbacks. we got to see a lot of great cornerback play one or two breakdowns. Um, and well, one of them was just like a, the luckiest pass I've ever seen. Um, but we really didn't see the, um, the, the interior deep backfield get tested. We re- you know, I was really eager because the, I feel like the position that I'm least certain about going forward is the safety group for Oregon. I was, really eager to see how they performed and we just didn't really get a lot of good data on that question i still don't really know how good of a nickel uh jamal hill is um or um or where bennett williams and jordan hapler are gonna um fit into the picture uh and then of course we're gonna learn real quick um uh next week because verone mckinley is going to be out for the first half so i'm really looking forward to seeing how they um they deal with that situation yeah, QB eleven. What'd you kind of take? You know, along with offensive line, safety was the next you know most talked about position group. I think for Oregon by most fans, and and I actually, I, you know, I think Hith makes a great point. I I think I kind of agree. I think we got a couple questions answered, but we still have a ton of questions because that group wasn't really tested overall. What did you kind of see there in in the secondary and and and, and from the safety group in, in specifically? Well, it's really tough to opine on the safety group just because the angles of the film that's available to us right now is so tight to the to the line of scrimmage. So I spent most of my time focusing on the front seven and the front five. But I, overall, I mean, just based on what we could see, I don't think that uh, we did get lucky. Jamal Hill did get beat on the first drive by Stanford, and there was a bad throw. But uh, overall, I just don't I don't think that there's really enough sample to have any real strict response to what was what we saw on Saturday from the there safety is- group. There is one positive thing you can say, which is that Oregon was trotting out a dime package. I actually snapped uh, or uh, caught him running a dime package eight times uh, during the course of this game. And the way that they, which they had not done at all in 2019, is the biggest surprise for me in this game. Um, And the way that they were doing it was bringing Nick Pickett down into the box as sort of a quasi linebacker you could think of him as um and then bringing steve stevens onto the field which i think that's a vote of confidence in those two guys certainly um uh which you know hey great to see if they're confident in their defensive backfield so much that they're you know putting them out and sacrificing front seven players and we know their front seven is tremendous then uh you know nice nice vote of confidence there well there's two things to tie into that too one i think it accents and kind of uh highlights the strengths of both Nick Pickett and Steve Stevens game. Uh, Nick Pickett being more of a box run defender, good tackler, alley defender, and Steve Stevens being more of the rangy over the top safety. So when you take, when you bring Pickett off the boundary safety down into the box, and then you play replace him with a guy like Stevens, you're basically getting two field safeties on the field playing whenever you decide to play too high coverage. So it helps in that sense. And then now we can kind of talk about the pass rush because I, vehemently disagree with the notion that our pass rush was bad on saturday yeah <laughs> people thought the pass rush was problematic the pass oh, rush yeah, was that great was, in this game i mean i know the one thing oh man boy uh well, yeah huh. <laughs> i mean i know they didn't record any sacks but i mean on half of all plays they were clearly clearly 
clearly affecting the the quarterback there was a swat in this game there were uh seven different hurries there was a pressure that that bad throw the QB mentioned in which Jamal Hill got beat it was a bad throw because the pressure was about to knock the quarterback on his butt like Mm -hmm. oh boy okay yeah yeah well not only like you're talking about that but when you compare what Stanford likes to do offensively they're a ball control offense they like to take the air out of the ball and stay ahead of the chain so it makes it hard to get into that dime pass rush package where we have Thibodeau, Dorless, uh, Follow You, and uh, and Jackson on the field at the same time. So w- they're, they're constantly ahead of the chains. Eight of the times that we were in dime, they ran on four of them because it was third and medium, third and seven. So they're going to run that draw play because really they're very conscious of the Oregon pass rush and have a lot of respect for it too. So right. I think that the entire – the idea that the pass rush was poor on Saturday is just on its face false when you watch the film because it, it's mostly response to a statistics issue where we didn't actually record any stats even though we were very consistently affecting the quarterback. Is it safe to say that pass rush uh, does a lot better statistically up in Pullman? Yes. Uh, it will definitely be fun to see a run and shoot offense with a different kind of offensive line go up against this pass rush. I'm looking yeah. forward to that one quite a bit. Yeah, I'll be really curious to see. I know they trotted out, you know, Dorless out there uh, a couple times and, you know, with Thibodeau on the side and Funa and just it was it was clear that, oh, they're going after the quarterback. And you know, I don't know about you guys, but I, I came away very impressed with Christian Williams in the snaps that he played. Oh, yeah. I came away came away impressed with with Dorless. I think the Ducks have a really great one there. And I know I know QB11 charted this or at least talked about it on on his Twitch feed, but really watching Kevon Thibodeau become a complete player to me because as you as you you know pointed out several times he was able to stack the, you know, offensive lineman that was guarding him, you know, and be able to shed those blocks which last year he he for the most part relied on speed uh, getting around those guys, it, it, I, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau, he might not have the 10, nine and a half sacks that he had last year, but man, he's looking like a much more complete player there to me. Uh, for you guys moving forward with this defense, you know, were you overall impressed with the versatility and all of the different things thrown out there, the dime being one of them, the different formations, the different personnel packages? What, what did you kind of glean from that? Is this just stage two of Andy Avalos or was this, you know, something for Stanford or what are you kind of taking away from this QB? Why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, we talked about last week, the multiplicity of the defense coming into the season and the flexibility that all of these players that we have give. So when you see 27, 28 guys in the rotation during non-garbage time minutes, it just kind of accents how, how multiple and how flexible uh, this defense is even more so than last year, um, partially because I think the personnel is better and allows for it, but also because it's year two and, they probably feel more comfortable installing more things. So, yeah, absolutely. It's an absolute weapon. And uh, we did a lot of different things against Stanford because Stanford was actually very multiple offensively. I think you'll actually see less packages against Washington State than we saw this week because personnel-wise, they're going to be basically always in 10 personnel uh, and they're going to be spread. So I think you'll see primarily nickel and dime all week. What I was impressed by was how many young guns got on the field. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Christian Williams, but also um, Keon Ware Hudson uh, got on the field. Um, uh, uh, Swinson got on the field. Obviously, Sewell uh, played a hell of a game. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of freshmen uh, on the so defense. Swinson got on the field quite a bit, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, and Swinson had one of the more complicated roles in that he was often the guy who was dropping, they have like complicated um, pressure packages where guys who line up on the line will sometimes drop into coverage. And Swinson was often the guy who was dropping into coverage. That's harder than just, you know, light your hair on fire and run at the quarterback. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, actually a lot of uh, confidence and faith was being shown in, in very young defensive players, which I, you know, that continues what Avalos was doing in 2019 when he was putting a ton of freshmen on the field then too. Yeah. There was times uh, on Saturday where it was all freshmen and sophomore, the entire front seven. So, and then if you look at the, the second half of the defense, it was the same thing with Wright Stevens, um, Hill, I mean, that's that's three sophomores and freshmen right there. So there's a lot of youth on defense getting getting playing time. Yeah, and that, that should bode well for 2021 because I know just before you got on QB, you know, me and Hith and Matt kind of agreed that this might be like a glorified intramural season or however you want to phrase it, but really it helps you in 2021. All these games definitely help with that. Um, I want to flip back before we kick you guys out. Um, I know everybody's got stuff to do, but – I want to go back to the offense, and I don't think we touched on on Joe Moorhead, the offense he ran, some of the things we saw. Um, I'm not going to get too specific with this question, but just kind of what did you see there and what gives you excitement moving forward? Hith, why don't you start, please? Well, uh, the thing that I liked the most was seeing how plays were sequenced and layered where – different components of the offense are speaking to each other is I know this is sounding kind of esoteric, but like it is an offense, which is structured to mess with the defense's heads in a way that the Andy defense is structured to mess with the offense's head um, where, you know, so one of the, the videos that I put in my article that I published this morning on addicted to quack.com it's a website uh, uh, is uh, it's DJ Johnson on this slice block um, where, you know, he is lined up as an H back on one side of the formation, but then as soon as the ball is snapped, he's running underneath the formation to the other side. Maybe he's going to uh, hit the unblocked defensive end and knock him on his butt, which DJ Johnson was very good at um, on a run play, or maybe it's going to be an RPO uh, and Chuck's going to pull the ball out and throw it on a slant over the middle, or maybe uh, Johnson's not going to hit that guy at all. He's going to whoop go around him. And now he's going to be a potential option uh, receiver, either to of a pass or a toss. And we saw all four of those things happened. And all four times you could see how the defense was affected by the last time, you know, they were, they were, they were, they'd be wrong the first time and then they'd adjust. And then they, you know, Moorhead would call the play in such a way that now they're wrong the second time. And now they're wrong the third time. And now they're wrong the fourth time. And <laughs> Oh man, it was like watching music. Uh, it was like watching a symphony. Uh, it was just, Oh, just beautiful. Just a beautiful game. Yeah, I think the thing that you can highlight most with a Moorhead offense is that he's constantly putting you in, in conflict, whether it's an individual player in conflict or you in a numbers conflict where you, uh, you get to make a choice now. And it's first the choice for the defensive coordinator. We're in 11 personnel with a mauling offensive line and DJ Johnson who can either absolutely destroy your edge defender or get out and, and run and actually be pretty fast. Or you can sit back and too high and we're just going to take advantage of the numbers in the box. So you, your, your defensive coordinator is in conflict. And now we get to take it to the next level where now he's going to start picking on individual players. It's going to either be the end man on the line of scrimmage in the zone read. He's going to pick a second or third level defender in the RPO. Or he's going to do both at the same time. And then you like, like uh, Hisliday highlights in his article this morning, you have, that, you have DJ Jen- Johnson coming across the formation on that wham block. And so now you have this edge defender who's tired of getting his bell rung 
And so he's going to try to wrong arm him and really take on that block. And he's just slipping by him. So you have players that are constantly second guessing themselves over the course of the game because of the way that the concepts are layered. And I, I like I said on the stream on, on Sunday night, it's, it's beautiful to watch because everything is interconnected and he, and he's playing games with both the players on the field and the coordinator and putting them in a position where no matter what they do, they're going to be wrong. That, that poor Stanford edge defender. I watched him yeah. get annihilated over and over and over again. And then, and then he gets blooped around and he's like, what's happening? That poor kid. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like he gets mauled by Steven Jones. And then the next play, he's unblocked by Jones, which I'm sure is a is a nice thing for him. And then DJ Johnson's coming across and smoking him. And then the next play after that, he's getting red and he's completely out of position because he's just been mauled the last two plays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he had a, he had a rough night. Uh, it's pretty impressive to see, you know, Oregon's physicality come on full display because again, we usually equate that with Stanford. Uh, overall, I guess simple simple question, simple answer. It sounds like. You guys feel like Oregon's upgraded at the offensive coordinator position this year? You bet. Yeah, very clearly. Yeah, very good. Uh, final thoughts here for you guys. Oregon going into Washington State. Looks like it's going to be right around 40 degrees and, and a wet. Doesn't, doesn't call for snow, but wet. But how, how are you feeling about Oregon heading to Washington State? Uh, QB, why don't you kick us off here? Uh, I'm always scared to play in Pullman. We haven't particularly played great going back to even Chip and Helfrich years in Pullman. So uh, I'm a little nervous, but I think from a talent and scheme standpoint, Oregon's very, very far superior. So uh, Oregon should be able to take care of business and win by a couple touchdowns, but you just never know going up against a run-and-shoot offense in weird weather. I think the interesting thing, I haven't watched the Wazoo Oregon State film yet, but I did run the numbers. And the thing that jumps out at me is, is on offense about Wazoo, uh, they actually didn't have a great performance in the passing game. They hit four 20-yard passes, but they were you know, underwater in terms of their success rate. They were only successful out of 47% of their plays, which Oregon, by the way, was 68% in both rush and pass last night or on Saturday night. Um, however, Wazoo's uh, rushing offense was very successful, and I understand some of that is Jaden Delora scrambling. Um, I'm really going to have to break down the tape to see what that's like, but if Wazoo seriously has a run game, um that's a that's a pretty significant new wrinkle for them um and uh, and on the other side of the ball uh, it really looked like Oregon State was just running them over um in the run game you know i had them only successful on about 35% of plays and they gave up five runs of 10 plus yards um and i'm pretty sure all of those were designed runs um but they all happened during a specific part of the game like it's in the third quarter that Oregon State just explodes and has these three long touchdown drives against them and i don't know if that you know, that meant that Jonathan Smith figured something out you know and maybe some halftime adjustments or what like uh it should be an interesting game to break break down i i, I don't really think based you know like qb said based on their talent level that wazoo suddenly um become giant killers but they certainly performed that role in the past yeah yeah no i i love what qb said about just the difficulties of playing in pullman and and i agree with you hith i i don't think wazoo is much different than we expected going into the year. Um, but I would be concerned nonetheless. Like if I were Mario Cristobal, I would just be saying, hey, 2018, 2018, and sharing that tape to every player on that team over and over again. You can't take this team for granted. Uh, even without fans, that's that's a difficult environment, and it's, it's going to be a difficult game. 
Well, and the other thing that sort of it will be relevant because Oregon has to play Oregon State, of course, in in, in the fourth week of the Pac-12 season. I think Oregon State might be in trouble. Um, just to give us a, a couple week preview, like their their defensive structure without a nose tackle, you know that that could be a big part of the reason why Wazoo was able to run all over them. In which case, you know, you're probably not going to see that replicated against Oregon. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. And, and Oregon might be better, you know, might be helped as well with some of the uh, the dime packages we saw uh, this well, weekend. Yeah. That there may be no bigger disparity in the conference in terms of a single unit than between Oregon and Oregon State at defensive backs. Like that might be number one versus number twelve. So, <laughs> <laughs> and also in the front seven because outside of Rashid, Oregon State's group they've got some decent inside linebackers, but their front their their interior pass rush is genuinely bad. Like I don't mean to just pile on, but they they don't have much talent or twitch up there. Whereas. Doorless, I mean, seriously, watching the tape on right. him this week, he's he's taken a huge leap from last year even. And he's he's probably the most twitchy interior r- rusher that we've had since – I mean, I can't even think of the last guy that was even close, really. Well, I, now, now you guys are just picking on Matt's beavers. No, so you guys need no, to no. leave him alive. They're, they're not – okay, so <laughs> I, you know I always got to throw this in there. They're not my beavers. I, I don't have I a know. dog in the damn fight. But I, I, I strongly agree, and I'll even say this. You guys know I'm a doofus when it comes to recruiting, but even I can see this. When Oregon State is getting kids from Coos Bay and Bend to play on the D-line, and Oregon is getting Kayvon Thibodeau, five-star, and they're blitzing Noah Sewell from the linebacker position, five-star, that's a talent disparity. Significantly, yeah, Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) I know we're talking about the dime package. I think it'll be employed a lot in those third and long, like very strict pass rush situations. But I would rather stay in nickel because ISM and Noah Sewell both are great in coverage. I mean, Noah Sewell was probably most impressive to me, obviously physically just dominating people. But the way he moves and uh, the relationship he has with his zones and coverage is really impressive. And I'd rather have a, a bigger body on the field in the middle because if there's anything that Washington state's offensive line is, it's massive. I mean, they still have a bunch of aircraft carriers that are holdovers from the leech, the leech days. So I'd I'd rather have guys that can take on blocks and shed playing in the middle of the field than a guy like Pickett, who he's good at against the run, but he's still, he's still only a six, one, 200 pound guy. So sure. Easy to get washed out. The other thing that's interesting that will be a good test for Oregon's defense is that uh, Wazoo, you know, the run and shoot, I haven't broken down the film on it, but I expect based on what he was doing at Hawaii, um, there's a lot of option routes in it, right? Where the receiver actually runs a different route based on how the defense is playing post snap. And that can be very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. There are a bunch of standing NCAA and NFL records that are set by NFL, by run and shoot teams. But if you do know what you're doing, there's a reason why Nick Saban destroyed the run and shoot when it got to his corner of the world, uh, because you can you can cause the offense to do exactly what you want them to do. And if Oregon has a bunch of smart defensive players, we know they're very physical. Let's find out if they're smart. Nice. That's good stuff. Well, I actually watched a, a Saban clinic on defending the run and shoot. And basically what his whole his whole ideology on it is. That you, you're gonna you're gonna know pre-snap who the bender is or who the guy that has all the option routes is because they don't have four receivers running option routes at the same time. So you friction that guy at the line of scrimmage and then you friction the quarterback in the backfield and you basically make them have to try to guess and play off timing. And I have a feeling that's what we're gonna see Avalos see. That's why I think we're gonna play 
a lot more nickel, and I think you're going to see a lot of zone blitzing, meaning Oregon's probably only going to bring four guys, but we're going to be dropping guys underneath on the opposite end of, of the overload. So yeah. it's going to be a really fun chess match to watch, but I really think that uh, we're going to be able to get home a lot more against Washington State than we were able to against Stanford. I mean, that's the holy grail with the run and shoot is get to the quarterback and it's game over. Um, and this is a pretty good defense of getting to the quarterback. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I don't know about you guys and I'm, we're going to send you off, but I thought, I thought Stanford was better than advertised given all that they've lost and everything. Yeah. I thought they, they played a really good game. They just did. And, and Oregon played better. So, I mean, I think uh, if we're comparing Stanford to Washington state, I, I do feel that, that Oregon uh, has a real, really great chance of walking out of Pullman with a win here. Gentlemen, we appreciate your time. Everybody's got work to do and things to do. And Matt and I can't record a, a three-hour podcast, or we would. So, um, <laughs> not anymore. You, we'll try and get yeah, not anymore. We'll try to get you guys on <laughs> next week uh, once again. But we appreciate your time and thanks so much. Yeah, take care. Awesome, thanks, guys. You know, I I really enjoyed some of the points they brought up. Um, Hithliday reminding me about um, how how susceptible that wazoo run and shoot is to pass rush and QB 11 bringing up that the Ducks the history is not always on their side when they have to go to Pullman uh, I've been thinking about history for a couple of minutes now when when we started talking about the versatility of this duck defense earlier uh, one last thought for me on Oregon football heading into this game Justin you've covered this team for forever is this the most versatile, the deepest duck defense you've ever covered? Oh, absolutely. There's no question. I, I know that, uh, you know, every time that it's mentioned, hey, this is, you know, Oregon's best defense or Oregon's best defensive line. You know, there are a lot of fans that have followed this team for a long time. Well, what, you know, what about Buckner and Armstead? What about Nick Reed? And, and, and there's there's been some other tremendous players to come through the Oregon program. Some of them have been, you know, just, Tremendous college players didn't make it in the NFL. Other guys like DeForest Buckner are, you know, absolutely just killing it in the NFL as well. But overall, you know, if you're talking one through eleven, and then you're talking, you know, two through two through twenty-two, you know, in terms of the guys that start and and the first guys off the bench, there's no question, without any question, that this is the best two deep organs ever had defensively in star power. Are there? Some holes or some concerns, sure, you could say that you're not totally comfortable, uh, you know, with the safety group. But overall, you know, that group as a whole is a pretty solid too deep. You know, it's a pretty strong group. And, and, and again, we're talking about the first 22 players, not just two or three or four where you're finding holes. So, yeah, I agree on defense. And, and, and you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Nick Aliotti uh, and some of the other guys that have come through. Uh, the Oregon program, but Andy Avalos, in my mind, is the best defensive coordinator that's that's been at Oregon, at least yeah. that I've witnessed firsthand. So um, I think you've got a great blend there. You know, Mario Cristobal not only has a great de- defensive coordinator, he's got great coaches. You know, Big Joe's been around forever. Ken Wilson is a guy that's coached at Washington State. He's he's coached linebackers for a long time. You know, I really feel like Rod Chance has done some tremendous things with with Diamador Lenore coming back. I think we can see the progress there. And then, of course, you have Keith Hayward coaching safeties that, that's done a great job since he's been here. So, yeah, with, with, 
What I love is something that, and we could talk about it at another time, but the fact that this is the second year of Andy Avalos, I think we, you know, we got about halfway through last year and realized we had a good defense and, and a great thing in Andy Avalos. But now you've got a guy that not only coached last year, had some of the offseason, even if it was only Zoom calls and other ways to kind of teach his group and add more things to the defense, which he's done. I don't know how long Andy Avalos will be at Oregon, but every year he's here, you'll probably see more and more of that. And it's just, you know, and with the talent that's coming in, the five stars and Sewell and Thibodeau and Dante Manning, these other guys, it, it's pretty remarkable Remarkable to watch. Yeah. Uh, Oregon, 4 o'clock on Saturday. They'll go up to Pullman, play Wazoo in the snow. Uh, I feel pretty good about this game. Uh, I, I'm out of questions. Is there anything you want to address heading into Oregon Wazoo? No, not in this particular game. I think, you know, I think we got a great feel for where Oregon's at. Game one, do we know everything definitively? No, we don't. It was game one, small sample size. We're going to get a better feel here in game two. Totally different style of opponent. You know, totally different coach, totally different offense, totally different defense. Yeah. Uh, so it will be fun to see the matchups and how Oregon adjusts for them. But after two, three weeks here, I know it's only a six-week season, you know, I think we'll have a better handle for where Oregon's at, but I feel good heading into this contest. All right. Five games? Yes, sir. Okay. Five games. We do this every week, getting you five college football games we each like and we each think you should watch. The catch is all five of these games are not the Oregon game, so that's fun too. Five games. Five games. This is fun. Normally, I let you go first, but I'm gonna start this one off just because this. What? Game, it, it, I know. I know. I'm gonna. You're break breaking with, tradition. I'm breaking with tradition. <laughs> I, I hope this doesn't ruin the weekend. Um, this game is stuck on my mind. I wanted to talk about it on my show yesterday. I just ran out of time. We got to talk about the number two team in the country, my fighting leprechauns from South Bend. I want to see Notre Dame again. want to see if they keep winning. 12.30 on Saturday, going up against BC. Yeah, I had that game down. Uh, I wondered if you would list it. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I think a, a full-strength Clemson probably would have walked through Notre Dame fairly easily. That was not the same Clemson that we saw the first couple of weeks. And yeah. that's how, that's part of, that's football. That's part of football this year. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that we've, you know, given Oregon a lot of credit for is depth, which is going to become a very important part of this season, whatever kind of season you want to call it and give Notre Dame credit. They've been able to navigate it pretty well. Uh, you know, Clemson has, has had some issues there. So yeah, I, I do have Notre Dame versus BC. Um, you know, I, I figured you would mention it, but a 1230 ABC game. So you get to watch that before the ducks come on. Um, it's kind of an interesting slate of football f for me this weekend. I don't know. I had a tough time putting five games down, but, but go ahead and give me one more, one more years and I'll, I'll throw a couple out. Yeah. Um, the other one for me and, and just like Notre Dame, BC, it's less about, uh, both of these teams, but more of just, I want to see more of this other team. I want to see USC, Arizona. I want to see if the Trojans look as ugly as I thought they were on Saturday, and I want to see if they can get away with that again. That's 1230, and that is on Fox, USC, Arizona. Okay. I didn't have that game down. I, I do think – I do end up thinking that game will be closer than it should, but that said, I do believe that USC will get that one handled. Probably be a lot closer at halftime than it should. 
Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, Kevin Sumlin, I feel like he's on his last leg there at Arizona, but who knows? Yeah. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a little surprised, but I, I probably would. I, I don't know. I might not have normally listed this game if there was a bunch of good games, but I did just because, but man, I'm kicking off the day with Penn state at Nebraska, nine o'clock mm. FS one. You got Owen three Penn state against Owen two Nebraska, a couple of very loud teams when we were talking about, you know, the, the big 10 was talking about coming back to playing or not. And yeah. I've never been a huge James Franklin fan. I know a lot of people share the sentiment of a used car salesman. I feel very much the same way. And Scott Frost, I mean, it seems like there's no love lost there between him and Oregon fans for the most part, maybe some of his parting comments, maybe just, you know, his quarterback recruiting and other things along the way. I don't know, but I, it's going to be a crappy game, you know, a couple of a couple of bad teams. But right now, it's kind of a look of all right, who remains winless from both of you that were ranked inside the top twenty-five to start your seasons. Yeah, you mentioned Scott Frost, and I I can imagine that's a name that you see on your boards a ton because, yep. like you said, Duck fans really can't get that name out of their heads. Um, do you think his problems at Nebraska are more him, or or is it just that program isn't what it was and it's never going to be back. Well, I mean, you know, they recruited pretty poorly there for a couple of years prior to his arrival and they've recruited some good players since, but they haven't recruited especially well. And you're, and you know, you're in the, you're in the big, tw- big 10. I mean, there, there's some really strong programs out there. Penn state's recruited incredibly well. Obviously you've got Ohio state. Uh, you've got Wisconsin that continues to play really good football. Uh, you've got Michigan state that can always be, you know, trouble any given year. So, you know, if you thought it was tough to recruit to Eugene, Oregon, I don't know how in the hell you thought it would be easier to recruit to Lincoln, Nebraska. I've been there. It's a nice place. Don't get me wrong. But how in the hell did you think that was going to be easier right. uh, than recruiting to Eugene, Oregon? So especially with all that Oregon has. So uh, I've been to Lincoln. I've never been to a Nebraska football game. I wouldn't mind going. I'd love to see it when things are returning to normal at some point in our lifetime. But um, I, I just... You know, I don't know. Scott Frost, I, I think he bit off more than he could chew. And I think he somewhat caught a bit of lightning in a bottle at UCF. He inherited a really talented team and some great pieces on offense. And again, you're at UCF. You're going through a conference that's, that's not nearly as difficult as the Big Ten week in and week out. So, um, you know, kind of like Chip Kelly may have caught the Pac-12 on a bit of, you know, a down time, as it were, at that point. Um I don't know, but yeah, I mean, Scott Frost certainly doesn't seem to have a ton of friends out this way any longer. It's 0-3 versus 0-2, and there wasn't much else early in the morning, so I picked that game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing, just sidetracking off of this game, I, I went to Oregon Tech, which is one of the most boring campuses, a lot of people think, uh, in America. Really dull. Uh, Klamath Falls is a small town, really quiet, really rural I can't fathom living in Lincoln, Nebraska. Like that to me, that would be a boring town. I'd much rather live in Eugene if I were 18. Um, my third game of the week. I, I'm curious what you think about this. Indiana, Michigan State, 9 a.m. on um, maybe Big Ten Network. I actually can't find where that one's televised, but. Um, do you think Indiana would be the number 10 team in the country in a normal year? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, in a normal year. Good question. Way, good way to look at it. Um, I like what I see out of Indiana. I mean, they're looking pretty good. I don't know. You know I guess I haven't followed closely enough to see if they're uh, being fortunate to be overall healthy and, and, and not having too many guys off the roster in the games and catching some of these other teams by surprise, or if they're legit, legit. They, I, I think they play fundamental football. They play sound or technical. Um, I like the defense a lot. I really like what I'm seeing there. Um, I think they do a decent job of ball control, and they're they're just enough of a spark on offense that they're able to mix things up a little bit. I like Indiana, but your question's really good that on a normal year, where would they be? I don't think they'd be number 10. I think they'd be hard-pressed to be in the top 15. But that's also assuming a lot of other things, that these other teams that are, are losing games they shouldn't would be better and aren't going to be missing guys like LSU – you know, Clemson, some of these others. So I, I think they're they're taking advantage a little bit, but they're a good football team, and and I think they're going to beat Michigan State this weekend. Uh, what's your third game? Uh, I also wrote I wrote down Wisconsin and Michigan, and more so, I I, I genuinely get I, I get a little bit of pleasure out of watching Jim Harbaugh <laughs> lose and looking bad losing. And he, he's just, I mean, you know, everybody, this is his year. This is year. You know, he's got yes. Josh Gaddis up there and, and he's fixed everything. And it's, you know what I mean? Every year it's like, and then it's the same crap every year. And I don't know. I, I don't know how Michigan fans aren't just fed up with it. It's, it certainly feels like they're getting that way uh, in a hurry. But I, you know, I'm genuinely as much as, as I've said all that, I'm excited to see Wisconsin's second game. They've, they obviously came out. Uh, guns blazing in their first game, but that's the only game they've played so far. Right. They've been off for a couple weeks, so I'm excited to see Wisconsin and, and their second game and see if they're for real because that's uh, that's also a fun team to watch. And obviously, you know, with Oregon playing the Badgers and the Rose Bowl and some other games, you know, they've, they're just kind of a team that the Duck fans tend to keep an eye on, myself included. Yeah, that's my fourth game. Uh, Wisco drilled them last year, and, and you saw that coming from a mile away. I remember you talking about that game, telling me how the Badgers were going to drop 50 on them. Uh, felt like it. And uh, I, I think that Michigan is at a crossroads as a program where Jim Harbaugh had success in 1AA with uh, San Diego. He had success in the Pac-12 with Stanford, but now you have to ask, is he the kind of coach where if you open the checkbook and you let him pick all the assistants that he wants and you let him run a top-notch program in every facet, in every fashion, can he manage a championship team? And and some coaches can. Nick Saban, clearly. Dabo Swinney, clearly. I think Duck fans hope that Mario Cristobal can. I know you hope Mario Cristobal can. Uh, but but there's a lot of doubt that Jim Harbaugh can't. Well, I mean, for me, as much as I'm, I'm – I, so I, I want to make sure people don't think that I'm down on Chip Kelly. I really appreciate Chip Kelly. I love his offensive mind and some of those things. But one of the things I often say about Chip Kelly is – he did catch the Pac-12 up at Oregon on a bit of a down cycle overall. The only other team that was any good really at the time was Stanford. Mm -hmm. So much as much as Jim Harbaugh is going to take credit for being great at Stanford and, 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 and Andrew Luck and all these things, and I don't discredit him for that, he too also ran through a pretty weak Pac-12 conference at the time. Washington wasn't very good. Cal was terrible. USC was off and on. You'd get a decent team one week, and you know they just went through so much turmoil that Chip Kelly and Harbaugh both are two guys that 
took advantage of a, of a down Pac-12. Since Harbaugh's moved on and gone to Michigan, he hasn't been very good. And so, uh, you know, I guess I don't know buyout situations there and other things, but I know Michigan's a, a, a very storied program, one of the most traditional teams in the entire country. They're not going to settle for, you know, six, seven, eight, eight win seasons, you know, and I don't, has he even won eight games since he's been there? Maybe one year. Um, you know, it's been the, it's been lower than that. I, I, I don't know if he's got a big buyout, but I think it's also going to come down to, is there somebody else better that they can hire if they decide to move on? And I think that becomes a big issue that we're not going to talk about here, but in the coaching carousel that's coming up in the next couple of weeks, because people forget, hey, the Pac-12 just started, but guess what? Nearly everybody else has been playing for a month already. So mm-hmm. if people are going to move on from their coaches, if Texas is going to move on, if Auburn's going to move on, if, if whoever, just go down the list, they're going to start doing that sooner than later to be out in front. So you kind of wonder about Michigan. And I guess at some point you would think Urban Meyer is going to land a job somewhere. Right, right. Uh, I think you have three games. Um, I could be wrong. Have you, have you done four yet? I have not. I okay. do you have any left or am I it? I do. I have one more. Okay. okay. I have Cal I'll go real quick. I have Cal okay. versus ASU. Cool. Do you have that one? No. No, uh, so I'm glad we're talking uh, about it then. Yeah, Cal versus ASU, seven thirty game on ESPN two. So you're getting some Pac twelve after dark. You're gonna get a we kinda know where ASU is. You know, I mean they can compete in the South. Obviously they're right there with USC. I thought they should have won that game. I think everybody else did. Um, they definitely should have won that game. But you're going to get a, a feel for Cal right out of the gate, this being their first game, where they measure up uh, in the Pac-12. You know, that, I, that, that, it, that's going to be a Pac-12 after dark game. And that one, to me, very much has the makings of things could get really weird in that game. Yeah. No fumbles, please. No fumbles. <laughs> I, I, I was blown away. I, I mentioned this earlier. The sloppy play in the Coliseum Saturday morning, USC and Arizona State, those are the two best teams in the South on paper. Every media poll voter had one of those teams in the South, um, and and they looked abysmal because of all those fumbles and all the penalties and all the mistakes. And I I believe in what Herm Edwards is building in Tempe. I want to see him put that on the field Saturday, and I want to see if Cal looks like the team that I hyped up for the past nine months. Um, you know, we're at a point now with COVID where. I said going into the year, Cal was my pick to win the North Division, and they're lucky now if they can get a game in. So hopefully that game gets played and, and that game gets cleared and the folks in Berkeley let them uh, play a few more. If, if this game gets played, I think it could be really fun. Yeah, I, I agree. So I've got one more, but you go ahead and list yours. i got a okay. feeling it might be the, the same game. Okay, all right. So i got to, you know, since I am the world's biggest Oregon State Beaver fan. It is the same game. My beloved, <laughs> my beloved orange and black. Okay, no, I, I'm not a Beaver fan. But, but, you know, I hype them up. I hype them up for one darn Civil War game two years ago, and I get comments about that all the time now. Uh, Oregon State, Washington, it boils down to this for me. The Beavers looked like a team last week. Their shoes didn't fit and they were tripping, and they were stumbling, and I, I want to see them just get back to their fundamentals. I see a team that when they lean on Jamar Jefferson at tailback, and they run a lot of bootlegs and a lot of play action, and, and um, 
and and RPOs and really just emphasize the mobility of Tristan Jebbia at quarterback rather than hope and dream that he can be this really like precise Peyton Manning pocket passer, I think Oregon State's a better team. Whether they do that or whether they still try to pigeonhole Jebbia and their offense into something they aren't, I don't know. Um, but I want to see that on Saturday. And then we've talked about this on this podcast for months. Jimmy Lake can talk a big game, but a year ago he was a D coordinator, and a year before he was a position coach. This guy might not be ready, and it might be ugly for Jimmy Lake year one. So I want to see that Saturday. Yeah, I, I I think you hit a lot of the points. I would say too, and and I know we'll we'll move on from this game quick. But you know, first things first. This is a, you got two Pac-12 after dark games. You got Cal and ASU that start at seven thirty on ESPN two. This one kicks off at eight on FS one. So if you can set up two screens, do it. Um, I think Jonathan Smith is a good coach. I really do, and I mean that. And and I'm actually pulling for the Beavers here, not just because of the Husky. Well, partially because of the Huskies, but. I like the Beavers. I like Jonathan Smith. I like the way that they're recruiting and trying to rebuild this program. And and it's very much a rebuild. I mean, there was so little talent left on that roster that he's had so much work to do in, in such a short time. And I think one of the things that makes him a good coach is he's flexible. I think he'll, you know, probably went home Saturday night, looked at the film. Hey, this is, you know, this didn't work. This worked. We need to do more of this. And I think they will do that this week. So you know, again, being flexible as a, as a head coach is a, a very good quality. I think Jonathan Smith will take that to heart and make the right adjustments for this game. And I think he's going to be able to exploit a very inexperienced Jimmy Lake, a potentially uh, not ready or unprepared Washington program uh, that's probably going to catch them a little bit off guard. So I, I, I'm I'm waiting for, you know, like you said, Jimmy, it's time for Jimmy Lake to put his money where his mouth is. We're going to see you know, exactly where he's at as a head coach week one. I think one of his greatest mistakes, and this is probably going to be related to ego, which is a bad, bad thing for a head coach. I know a lot of them have it, but it's a bad, bad thing. One of his biggest mistakes that last I heard, which was a couple short months ago, Chris Peterson left the program and hasn't talked to anybody there since. And if you're Jimmy Lake, the guy you should be calling probably two to three times a week is Chris Peterson and picking his brain and saying, right, Hey, right. How do I do this? Where do I get better at this? We're not doing this. Well, what do I need to do? I don't care if it's a COVID year or what it is. He should have been calling Chris Peterson two to three times a week. And if his ego is that big that he doesn't, uh, it's time for him to put his money where his mouth is. Peterson hasn't talked to anybody. Well, I shouldn't say that. I know he hasn't. That Jimmy Lake and Chris Peterson have not spent a great deal of, amount of time on the phone together. Now, have they maybe had a conversation here or there, or or a couple text messages? Sure, but my point is, you know, I think I I would wager Mario Cristobal's talked more to Mike Bellotti. Yes, we know that for a the, fact. We know that for we, a fact. Yeah. We've interviewed Bellotti. Bellotti's talked right. about that. And he has absolutely zero connection to Bilotti. You know what I mean? Other than Bilotti was a, a beloved Oregon coach, and he's a smart guy, and he knows a lot, a lot about the game of football. And you know, I, I, you know, I think that's a huge mistake by Jimmy Lake not to have Chris Peterson. One of the great things about you know Herm Edwards down at ASU is getting Marv Lewis down there. You could go get a guy like that with that amount of experience and that amount of knowledge on defense, and he's willing to come. Man, you sign him up every day a week. That's Herm saying, hey. You're going to help us get better. I'm going to count on you. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know Jimmy Lake uh, as closely as I know, you know, the Oregon program. 
but it, it certainly seems as though his, his ego might be getting in the way a little bit. I think it's going to catch him this first game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, that's five games and, and a few more than five games, really. And, uh, and a lot of fun. Looking forward to a good Saturday. Um, up ahead, we just got one last thing on the agenda. Lock of the week. Okay, Oregon Wazoo, 4 o'clock on Saturday. It's going to be a snowy night in Pullman. Ducks trying to go to 2-0. and What's your lock of the week, my friend? Okay, so I had to dig deep for this one a little bit, you know, and, you know, I feel like saying Verdell would lead the team in rushing is kind of a layup, you know, some of these other ones that were obvious. So I wanted to, I wanted to make it a little harder on myself. And so my lock of the week, the angle that I'm playing this week is I believe that Jalon Red will lead Oregon in all-purpose yards. And the reason I say all-purpose yards is because I believe that they will use him in the run game kind of an end around or reverse or some of those types of plays that Oregon can do. And he's going to, he's going to accumulate, you know, some big plays on the ground. Those count as rush yards, not pass yards. But I think Oregon will also figure out ways to utilize him in the slot. And I think he makes a a, a great, I I mean, I don't know the the catch I saw that was a bad throw by Shuck. It shouldn't have been thrown, but Jalen Red's got two guys on his back and manages to take the ball. He's on the edge and blocks the crap out of that, that uh, defensive edge player that we've been talking about that got his, his bell rung several times by, by everybody on the offense of Oregon. I think Jalen Red's going to be rewarded. And again, I say all purpose yards so that that way it counts his rush yards and his receiving yards. I think he'll be the leader on Oregon. I don't want to necessarily say he'll lead the team in touchdowns because I got a feeling that they'll get down in the red zone and get close to the, to the, uh, uh, the goal line, and it could be C.J. Verdell, it could be D.J. Johnson, you know, flexing out there, getting those short yarded t- touchdowns. But I think this is a game where we're very much going to talk about Jalen Red and the impact he has on the offense this week. I like that prediction. I, I think if you listen back to the last two weeks, Justin loved C.J. Verdell last week. He loves Jalen Red this week. To me, that says this Oregon team has an identity. They're going to run the ball really effectively. They are going to um, use their physicality up front. They're going to make big plays that way, and they're going to make you stop it. I love that pick. For me, and Hithliday hinted at this earlier, QB11 talked about this as well, schematically, some of the things that Andy Avalos can do against a run-and-shoot offense like Nick Rolovich runs up in the Palouse. I think this is the week the Duck D-line breaks out. I've got at least three sacks for the guys. I think Kayvon Thibodeau gets on the stat sheet that way. I think we're going to see some linebackers blitz and wreak havoc that way. Would not be shocked if Noah Sewell gets his first career sack as a Duck. Um, To me, the, the run and shoot really just boils down to it's a threatening offense. It can score a lot of points. It can make a lot of plays, but they're going to have four or five receivers out running routes on every single play, and that's simple math. If they got five guys out deep running routes, all you got to do is send six, and you've got a free blocker. Or, or send five, and everybody potentially has a one-on-one opportunity. I'm going to trust Kayvon Thibodeau to beat that. 
I'm going to trust Noah Sewell after what I saw on Saturday, him trucking the Stanford center on a blitz up the middle. I'm going to trust these guys to make the most of uh, one-on-one opportunities in pass rush and wreck havoc. And I like that pick. I'm glad you went defense first and foremost. Um, and I agree with you. I know th- that just from reading Scoop Duck fans, you know, worried about the pass rush, worried about the pass rush. I'm not. Hith isn't. QB 11 isn't. And I think you've got to understand that that's, you know, what we saw last week was a serious byproduct of what Stanford tried to do. They tried to take the air out of the football, which we knew they were going to do. Right. Anytime they were passing for the most part, they were trying to get quick passes out so that you're only taking, you know, a three-step drop and getting the ball out, which obviously neutralizes a lot of your pass rush. But even then, you know, the guys were there. They were getting there. I mean, they were within a step. They were, you know, making the quarterback move and having to throw off platform and doing all kinds of things. So not to mention, you know, to go along with that and how that applies this week. I thought Jaden Delora was great last week. A big fan, really excited. You know, I, I had it, I had it, I had an absolute joy watching him play Oregon State last week. But now he's on film. You know, and Oregon's gonna be able to watch that this week and kind of see what he does well and how to confuse a true freshman quarterback, uh, which is something that's gonna be key. You know, that's not something that Oregon State had the benefit of because nobody really, you know, knew who the starting quarterback would be and and, and just exactly how this offense would look different. So at least now it's on film, you know, Oregon's been able to study that, take that with what they've looked at, you know, from Rolovich at Hawaii and what he did there offensively. And, uh, you know, if I'm counting on a guy, it's Andy Avalos to be able to figure out how to make his defense, you know, get to the quarterback. So I love your pick. I think that's a really good one as well. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, a uh, couple of loose ends uh, wrapping up. I got to congratulate Duck alum Jordan Kent, Ernie's son, getting the uh, Blazer TV job. Uh, hoops coming up soon. Is it still football, football, football in your world? Um, you know, it is. You, you, you know, I posted that, you know, when you're talking about hoops, I, I posted that the women, uh, you know, were ranked number 10. Uh, in the AP poll that just came out earlier today. We're on a Tuesday here. Um, so kudos to them. Um, you know, we're starting to see them send out some media alerts for Zoom calls and, and interviews and stuff like that for the men and women. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you give me another two weeks here, which puts me, if you talk about two weeks, that unfortunately puts me halfway through the football season <laughs> just like that. And, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously keeping an eye on basketball. I love talking hoops. Um, but that will definitely ramp up here, you know, on the podcast and, and on the site in the next couple of weeks as well. All right. Well, I feel really good about this week. Uh, we've talked about how the Stanford game impacted Oregon recruiting. Uh, we've looked ahead to the Oregon-Washington State game this weekend. Uh, two great guests, Hithla Day from AddictedToQuack.com, QB11 from Scoop Duck, um, and uh, you and I. Just having fun chatting duck football on a Tuesday. Is there anything else you want to hit at before we call it quits? Nope, nope. Great podcast. We cool. appreciate you guys listening. We uh, and I'm and I appreciate your flexibility for us to get these out earlier in the week, Matt. I know it makes a difference for our listeners. Yeah. And uh, other than that, I guess it's go ducks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll be back early next week. Scoop duck and hi fi. My name's Matt Bagley. He's Justin Hopkins from scoopduck.com. And if you like the podcast, give us a review, leave us a comment, and uh, share it with another Duck fan. Thanks for listening. Let's do this again next week. Go Ducks! I can do this night like all day long.